The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 4, beginning at verse 38. We'll be reading through verse 44 this morning. The word of the Lord. And Elisha came again to Gilgal, when there was a famine in the land, and as the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, Set on the large pot, and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. One of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds and came and cut them up into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. And they poured out some for the men to eat. But while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, O man of God, there is death in the pot, and they could not eat it. He said, then bring flour, and he threw it into the pot and said, pour some out for the men, that they may eat, and there was no harm in the pot. A man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 14, beginning at verse 13. We will be reading through verse 21 this morning. The word of our God. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, They followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Here endeth the New Covenant reading. Please keep your place here, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our morning sermon. No matter how much of an extrovert you happen to be, There are times in everyone's life when we just want to be alone. 
This is particularly true if the other people are placing fresh demands on your emotional and physical resources while you're already exhausted. Now, don't get me wrong. When a really significant tragedy happens in our life, like the loss of a loved one, it is a great comfort when our family, our friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ come to us and they hug us to let us know that they care about us. Uh, when they simply sit with us or they bring us a meal saying, I want to be with you in this time of grief in order to bear some of your burden. Yet even then a time comes when we need to simply sit by ourselves or walk by ourselves to be alone in our profound grief and to share it with our God. Jesus fully understands what this is like. As a genuine man with a true human nature, Jesus shares in our full range of emotions and physical needs. Jesus had just been given the devastating news that King Herod, in an absolutely barbaric fashion, has just executed his friend, his cousin, and his co-worker for the sake of the kingdom of God, John the Baptist. As we saw last week, Herod was having a drunken party in celebration of his own birthday when he had John beheaded and his head brought to his young stepdaughter because he had promised her to give her whatever he wanted, whatever she wanted. Jesus has just heard this devastating news. Furthermore, this wicked assault upon the one who was sent to prepare the way of the Lord would have reminded the Christ of his own pending punishment at the hands of wicked rulers. Jesus could see quite clearly where his own life was going, and he was exhausted by his own ministry. And so he headed off in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Now Mark tells us that he also had compassion on his disciples who were worn out. He wanted to give them a rest as well. And actually, if we just read Matthew closely, we could probably glean this from the text. Jesus gets in a boat to go across the Sea of Galilee, and presumably it was a boat from one of his disciples who was a fisherman and had a boat. And we'll discover later that all his disciples are on the other side of the lake with him. Nevertheless, as we will see next week, Christ's plan was to give his disciples rest, but it was also that he would then slip away from his disciples so he could be alone with his Father in heaven, so that he could enjoy spiritual renewal in his own life after the demands that he'd been under and after, after he had also heard this devastating news about John. Our Lord's plan was simple. No disciples, no crowds, just by himself with his Father who is in heaven. Yet it turns out that it isn't so simple for Jesus to just slip away. When, when people see him going away, when they hear him slipping away, they rush to follow him. People hear that Jesus is coming near to their region and they flood out of their villages to go out and meet and be with him. But what about our Lord's own need for personal renewal? Please mark this well. The crowds are not coming out to see Jesus, to minister to him. They're not coming to hug him. 
They're not coming to sit with him in his time of grief or to bring him a meal. They are coming to receive. They are coming to listen to his teaching. But they're also coming out with all manner of sick people, with people with various problems, some undoubtedly demon-possessed, and they're hoping that Jesus will act on their behalf to meet their needs. They're coming out for themselves. They're not coming out for him. Physically and emotionally exhausted, how would Jesus respond to the crowds? We're going to look at this morning's passage under four main headings. First, others. Second, mission impossible. Third, trust the provider, not the provision. And fourth, useful. For those of you taking notes, let me give those to you again. Actually, for those of you who are not taking notes, it's good for you to hear this so you know where we're going this morning. First, others. Second, mission impossible. Third, trust the provider, not the provision. And fourth, useful. We begin with our Lord's focus on others. And with how this ought to change the way that we as his followers see those who are all around us. Verses 13 and 14. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowd heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. I wonder how many of you know that William Booth was the founder of the Salvation Army. Uh, I discovered years ago that uh, people often wanted to associate me being a Booth with John Wilkes Booth, and nobody ever said, are you related to William Booth? Uh, but there's a remarkable story about, uh, told about William Booth when he had grown old and feeble and was about to die. It was Christmas Eve, 1910. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, was an invalid and near the end of his life, and it was impossible for him to attend that year's annual meeting of the Salvation Army. Yet one of his friends who was close to him said, perhaps you want to send a message to the convention, something that will encourage the people there, something that will lay out your own vision for your own life and for the future of the Salvation Army. So William Booth thought deeply about his own life and what he hoped the people would carry on after he died. When the thousands of delegates met, the moderator announced that Booth could not be there due to his failing health, and naturally people were very disappointed. But as they opened up the meeting, he also announced, we have a message here, a telegram sent from our founder, William Booth. And he opened up the telegram and he read the message that contained only one word, others. What a profound message, others. But beloved, you see that Jesus did not win learn that message from William Booth. William Booth was taught that message by Jesus Christ. Jesus is emotionally and physically exhausted. Yet when confronted by thousands of people who are like sheep without a shepherd, Jesus has compassion on them 
And Jesus thinks first, others. And out of his deep compassion, he acts on behalf of the crowds to meet their needs first before meeting his own needs. Now, this does not mean that there is never a time for us to step aside and to care for ourselves and to be renewed. Actually, the very next thing Jesus does, we're going to see this next week, is after he ministers to the crowds, he dismisses his own 12 disciples, sends them on the boat to go by themselves, and he goes up on a mountain by himself to be alone with his God. Right? Jesus actually models the need for rest, for times of quiet prayer, and for spiritual renewal. For you to seek rest as his people is to be like Jesus. I'm emphasizing that because some of you particularly need to hear that today. God is not calling you to be on an endless treadmill. In fact, the Lord cares so much about his people getting rest, but he gives us one day in seven is a weekly Sabbath day where we can enter into his divine rest in the midst of our own human restlessness. To come aside and rest in God is to be like Jesus. Nevertheless, to set aside our own plans out of compassion for others is also to be like Jesus, right? We, we don't get so fixated on what I'm hoping to do that we miss the people who are all around us. To set aside our own plans out of compassion for others is also to be like Jesus. Our Lord had compassion on the crowds, so he changed his plans in order to meet their needs. Tom Wright says it particularly well. Jesus' reaction here is remarkable. He had lost John, his cousin and colleague. He had lost him in a manner which must have warned Jesus of what lay ahead for him too. Yet when he slips away to be quiet and alone, the crowds discover and throng all around him. And his reaction is not anger or frustration, but compassion. He translates his sorrow over John and perhaps his sorrow for himself into a sorrow for them. Before the outward and visible works of power, healing the sick, comes the inward and invisible work of power in which Jesus transforms his own feelings into love for those in need. My dear brother, my dear sister, as you sit here this morning, please do not imagine that Jesus had more compassion on the crowds than he has for you. This is your good shepherd. The one who, when absolutely exhausted and needing renewal, thinks of other people first. Jesus is the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Verse 15. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Uh, it's important for us to grasp what the disciples are doing here or to some degree what they're not doing here. The disciples are not simply a foil who get it wrong so we can see Jesus getting it right. Who are the disciples thinking about here? Right. It's a simple question. 
Who are the disciples thinking about? They're thinking about others. See, they, they come to Jesus. They, they fully realize that this crowd, as long as Jesus is teaching them, and particularly as long as Jesus is healing their sick, they're not going anywhere. They also realize there's no food around. And, and in a few hours, they're going to be very, very hungry, and they have no way of meeting that need. And so they come to Jesus and they say, Lord, right, you're doing this good thing, but it's time. Dismiss the crowd. Let them go to the surrounding villages and they'll buy some food for themselves. It's totally reasonable what they're doing. And they're doing it because they care about this crowd that they do not even know. The disciples quite reasonably conclude that as long as Jesus is there teaching and healing people, nobody is going to leave. And so they step forward to try to solve the problem. Then to their utter astonishment, Jesus then gives his disciples what I am calling mission impossible. Look at verse 16 with me. Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. You notice that Jesus does not say, they need not go away. I am going to give them something to eat. Jesus says, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. That is, Jesus is putting this clearly in their lap precisely to teach them something that's going to be vital for them to learn for the entire rest of their ministry and something that's vital for all our Christian lives as well. Uh, not surprisingly, our Lord's disciples respond, we only have five loaves here and two fish. Right? What they're saying is obvious. Lord, we cannot possibly do what you're telling us to do. We are more than willing to step up if we only had the resources. But all we have here are five loaves and two little fish. To be honest, Lord, we don't even have enough here for ourselves. How could we possibly feed thousands of people? Do you ever feel like that? You know, you have someone in your life who is suffering in really profound ways. You want to help. You have no idea how you could be of help. You have no idea what to say to them. And so you do nothing. And you say nothing. Do you have people in your life who don't know Jesus? I mean, certainly you do. But someone whose worldview is now so different from yours that you don't even know where to start. You, you recognize your own weakness, your own inability that you do not have the words to convince this people that they need to give up going their way to going Jesus' way. And so you weep over them, you pray for them, but you don't actually say anything to them. You never get around to actually telling them the good news about Jesus Christ. It would be strange if this wasn't part of the lived experience of every single person in this room. If we never think like this, it might be because we have comfortably reduced what Jesus has called us to do in this world to those things that we can pull off if we're just wise enough in our planning 
and if we just exert ourselves with enough discipline. Now, the Lord does call us to plan wisely and to apply ourselves to living out the Christian life, but it should be obvious to everyone here that the Lord does not limit what he is calling us to do to the things that we can accomplish if we're just wise enough and try hard enough. Uh, consider the Great Commission, right? This is not something hidden off in a corner. It's where this whole gospel is going. Consider the Great Commission. In the Great Commission, Jesus says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. My dear brothers and sisters, if Jesus Christ is sending us out to do that in our own power, we might as well go home right now. We don't even need to finish the service today. I trust you all realize we cannot possibly do this in our own power. And the good news is Jesus doesn't call us to do that. He sends us out to disciple the nations, not in our power, but in his. Right? Jesus and the Father together have given us the Holy Spirit to be both with us and in us. And Jesus, the one to whom all power in heaven and on earth has been given, promises us, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What is impossible in our power is absolutely certain in his. Beloved, we can dare great things for our God because the God whom we serve is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or could even imagine. We can draw near to those in need without any idea, any idea at all, for how we can be a blessing to them because we can draw near praying, Lord, here I am. I am your servant. Would you graciously do what I cannot possibly do and use me to be a blessing to this person in need, that they would be helped and that you would be glorified. With man, so many things are impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Now Jesus has just pushed the 12 to see their own utter inability to do what he is calling them to do. Uh, the disciples protest. We only have these two little fish and five little tiny loaves of bread. And then Jesus responds, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. I've called this section, Trust the Provider, Not the Provision. The disciples knew perfectly well that every good thing they enjoyed was a gift from God. Yet, like us, please note I say like us, don't read the Gospels and go, wow, look at those disciples not getting it. They are so unlike us. No, like us, the disciples were tempted to place their confidence in what the Lord had already given them 
rather than in the Lord himself, right? What they could see and touch. They didn't recognize it was from God, but they were trusting the things he gave rather than trusting the Lord in himself. And so they focus on the fact that they only have two little fish and five small loaves of bread. I mean, if the Lord wanted the disciples to feed 7,000 people, why hadn't he given them plenty of food in advance? You'd ask that in your own life. And see, the reason is, is God actually wants us not to trust the things he gives us. He wants us to trust him personally. And therefore, our God often delights to actually make his provision available to us in the midst of our work as we step out in faith. Not in advance, right? Not so we can take the credit or we can trust the things we touch, but in the very process of us seeking to serve and bless other people, the Lord will provide. What Jesus does is outwardly so simple. Uh, Jesus has the crowds lie down on the green grass. He takes the bread and the fish and he gives a, a blessing. That is, he actually blesses his father who is in heaven. You'll notice he's looking up in the heaven. He's not looking at the bread. Uh, the tra traditional Jewish way of um, offering a blessing is you actually bless God, not the elements. And that's what Jesus is doing here is he also does with the Lord's Supper. Then Jesus breaks the bread and he gives it to the disciples who give it to the crowd. Everyone eats. Everyone is satisfied. And there's actually baskets of food left over after he's done. It's all so simple. And yet so utterly amazing. Uh, not surprisingly, many commentators have connected this story, rightly, I want to say, connected this story with the manna that God gives in the wilderness. But regrettably, many of those commentators wrongly connect it with Moses. That is, they say, look, this is an example of Jesus being the prophet like unto Moses, who is to come. Now, it's true, of course, that Jesus is the prophet unlike the, uh, like unto Moses, who was prophesied in the Old Testament. But you have to see in the story that Jesus is not in the role of Moses, another, one of those people that's receiving the manna. Jesus is in the place of Almighty God. He's the provider in this passage, not the recipient of the provision as Jesus tells us in John chapter 6, he is not only the provider, he is actually our ultimate and most important provision. In John chapter 6, Jesus says this, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This means that ultimately the most important thing for us is not simply that we receive from Jesus. The most important thing for you as you sit here this morning is that you receive Jesus himself. He is both the priest and the sacrifice. He is both the provider and your ultimate provision. In him you have life and life in abundance. For if we belong body and soul to our faithful Savior Jesus Christ, then and only then can we pray, 
the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. There's actually a a wonderful little detail in verse 19 uh, that I don't want you to miss. Jesus orders the crowds to lie down on the grass to eat. Now, Now, the ESV translation does something that makes it easier for us to understand. It says they sit down on the grass to eat. Because that's how we eat. We sit down. But actually the word means recline, to lie down. Here's why that's significant and worth getting. Mark tells us that the grass was in fact green grass. See, Jesus is the good shepherd who's causing his people to lie down in green pastures as he feeds them and provides for their needs. That is, you ought to be connecting this passage of Jesus feeding these people with Psalm 23 that talks about him is our good and faithful shepherd. Do you see that your Lord's compassion for his people is not merely hypothetical? I mean, that's that's the way that many people in the modern world take things like love, like they're just emotions that are all about me and inside me. Jesus does not simply have warm thoughts toward the crowd as he goes off on the mountain by himself. He stops what he's doing. He gives up his plans, and he tangibly ministers to them, teaching them, feeding them, and healing their sick. And our good shepherd feeds us to the point that our abundance overflows. Right? Uh, That's what we learn in verse 20. They all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. You know, if you're really, really hungry and you're not going to quite make it, you know, your parents might say, here's a little bit of uh, food. Here, have a banana. It'll hold you over to dinner. That is not what Jesus is doing here. They have a need. Jesus gives them more than enough. It's important for us to remember that in our lives. God is not a chintzy God holding out on us going, hey, that's enough for you. Get back to work. Rather, the Lord gives so much that after everyone is completely satisfied, there is still baskets of food left over. The critical thing, therefore, is that we trust the Lord who is our provider and not merely trust in the provision that we can already see and touch because Jesus is enough. Uh, There's one more point I think we ought not to miss in this passage. I think it's actually rather important for us to grasp this. Jesus does not give the food directly to the crowd. Did you notice that? See, Jesus breaks the bread and he gives it to his disciples and his disciples give it to the crowd. That is, Jesus makes his disciples instruments of his grace. He makes them useful for the sake of the kingdom of God. That is how the, that's how it works in the kingdom of God. The Lord makes his disciples instruments of his grace. And not just them, but us. He makes us useful in blessing other people. I think that's actually an important truth that sometimes we can miss if we're emphasizing so much the absolute sovereignty of our God. God in his sovereignty has chosen to make your life matter, not only for right now, but for all eternity. Now, of course, you all know the Lord doesn't need you. Doesn't need me either, right? Uh, We actually know from uh, other passages that this food originally came not from the disciples, from a young boy. This young boy had the two small fish, and the the, the five tiny loaves of bread. It was just a lunch for him. I don't think that boy went home that evening and said, 
wow, Jesus and I fed several thousand people today. Right? That's not how it worked. And the disciples, when they're picking up the baskets, were not thinking, hey, you know what? It was fantastic that Jesus did his part and we did our part, and together we fed several thousand people today. Everyone knew it was entirely of Jesus. He's the one that did all the provision. And yet God and his grace chose to use them anyway. That's how it is with you. right? God does not need you. But he has graciously called each of us to be part of his own mission to reconcile the world to himself in Jesus Christ. Jesus isn't just saying your life is going to matter a little bit. He's saying, I have designed my plan of salvation so that your life will not only matter a great deal, it will matter for all eternity. Isn't God good? The disciples knew perfectly well that the provision was entirely from Jesus, but they were also discovering that the God who didn't need them was delighted to use them. And he's delighted to use us as well. The Lord powerfully uses the very gifts that he has first given to us when we offer them back for his use and for his glory. In fact, the emphasis in this passage is precisely on the disciples, not on the crowds. We are not told the response of the crowds. And the emphasis is not on Jesus providing for his disciples. It's on Jesus providing through his disciples. Jesus did not multiply the bread and the fish because his disciples were hungry, but so that they could feed the vast crowd. That is, Jesus was teaching them, and he is teaching us, that he will provide us with what is necessary. Let me add, whatever is necessary for us to minister in his name. Uh, Back in chapter 10, Jesus sent out his disciples with frankly, some rather unusual instructions. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, right? You don't need financial provisions. No bags for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff for the laborer deserves his food. Now, as the rest of the New Testament makes clear, this is not a permanent injunction on their ministry or a plan for how God's going to do ministry for 2,000 years but he was teaching them something that is absolutely vital. What Jesus was doing through these unusual instructions was teaching them that he would powerfully provide what they needed to make their ministry in his name fruitful. That is what he's teaching each of us. By miraculously multiplying the fish and the loaves, Jesus is teaching us that he is both willing and able to abundantly provide everything that we need for us to do everything that he is calling us to do, to glorify and to enjoy him forever. If you commit yourself to following Jesus, your life's going to be hard. Actually, Jesus tells us that, right? Um, Jesus makes abundantly clear that to follow him with deep commitment is going to involve opposition from this world, maybe even from your own family and friends. But it will also be fulfilling, and it will also matter, not only right now, but for all eternity. Beloved, please do not be discouraged by looking at the resources that are on hand. That's our temptation, 
right? Lord, if I had more resources, I'd put them at your disposal. You know, the truth is, actually, um, if we're trusting the resources rather than the Lord, our temptation is to hoard them, right? To say, I'm willing to share, but I can't run out. And Jesus says, look to me, right? My grace never comes to an end. Do not be discouraged by looking at the resources that are on hand. Instead, look to Jesus, who is able to abundantly provide everything that you need in order to serve him with everything that you have. Well, there's a great deal for us to put into practice out of this passage. The Holy Spirit is calling us to become like Jesus, who out of compassion focused on the needs of other people. The Holy Spirit is causing us to lift our eyes from the things that we can see and touch and to focus our confident gaze upon Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith. It is so easy to imagine that if we had more resources, we would do more. And God says, I've given you my word. I have given you God himself, the Holy Spirit. And I am with you not only now, but even to the end of the age. Beloved, Jesus Christ is not calling us to serve in our own power, but in his And the Holy Spirit is calling us into God's own mission to reconcile the world to himself in Jesus Christ. That is, the Lord is not only committed to making your life matter for good, he's calling you to matter for the ultimate good and for all eternity. In our own power, this would be utterly hopeless, but in God's power, it is utterly certain The Holy Spirit also, once again, has revealed to us the astonishing beauty of our good shepherd, Jesus Christ, who who is a shepherd with extraordinary compassion for us, his people. Let us therefore trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding. In all our ways, let us acknowledge him, and he will make straight our paths. Amen.